on that one. Having uh, huge amounts of tech difficulties this morning, and um, <laughs> so we're trying to play this from my computer instead of the other one. Yay! Well done, guys. Well done. It's always good when you have your notes in the right order before you start. So uh, last last Sunday night, um, it was brilliant because we had people from all the different churches across Skipton and actually beyond as well together celebrating Pentecost. And over these next few weeks under the hashtag Do You Know Him title, in all our different churches, we are going to be doing the same sermon series um, based on the I Am sayings of Jesus. And uh, they are not in order in the gospel. They are in a random order. I think, according to Phil, it wasn't a random order. From my point of view, it feels like a random order, and he's not here to defend himself this morning. Um, so uh, we're going to have a bit of context before we start. I get to do that bit. Uh, so a question. How many gospels are there? Sure? How many gospels are there in your Bible? Okay, let's try a little bit harder. How many Gospels are there? Four. There's four. Okay, that was the answer. The answer was four. (laughs) Four. In my Bible, there are four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of... And the Gospel... Oh, Bliminette, this is hard work and we haven't even got started yet. So, uh, there are three... Synoptic Gospels, and if you want to know what that means, ask Andy Sellers. (laughs) Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you will have observed, I hope, that they are roughly similar to each other. There's the same stories you find in all of those. Matthew and Mark are particularly similar, but Luke is also similar. There, There is a kind of a commonality around those three Gospels. And then there's the Gospel of John, And John feels quite different when you read it. John, who was the son of Zebedee, not the one out of the magic roundabout, the brother of James, the one who said of himself that Jesus loved him, who wrote the very cleverly named 1, 2, and 3 John, just to give you a clue, and Revelation. And they all have a slightly different angle and a slightly different focus. And um, this slide seemed to sum it up to me, so I just, I just nicked it. Um, Matthew is the one that takes the Jewish background of Jesus and explains how Jesus fulfills the Jewish law. Talks about the son of David, really focuses in on the incarnation, the humanity of Jesus, probably written in Galilee. Mark, who focuses on the suffering servant. You get the first part of the authority of Jesus. And then the next bit is all about the cross and the resurrection. And the symbol for um, 
All of those you'd see in the stained glass windows that's been the same symbol through many generations is the lion for Mark. For Luke, he's talking about the humanity of Jesus, the savior of the world, the atonement. And Luke's symbol is the ox. He's looking at it from a more Greek perspective. And John really focuses on the deity of Jesus. And his symbol is the eagle. And he probably wrote his letter from Ephesus. But they just have different emphases. John leaves out lots of things. He leaves out the nativity. He leaves out the temptation. He leaves out all the parables. He leaves out the Sermon on the Mount. He leaves out a detailed account of the Lord's Supper. About 90% of John's gospel is original to John. John has a very, very clear purpose in what he's writing And we don't have to guess what it is because he tells us, and it's always good when they do that. And right at the end of his gospel in chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right from the beginning of his gospel, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and explains to us that Jesus is the Word of God. To the very end, John's purpose is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we might have life. So we don't need to kind of think very hard about what we need to learn from John's gospel. That's always what he wants us to learn and to understand. John has um, a number of ways of communicating that. And one of the things that comes out very clearly through the gospel of John is the signs or miracles that Jesus did in order to display the fact that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. They're signposts, if you like, pointers, so that we can understand who Jesus truly is. And there were seven signs, seven miracles, seven being the number of completeness and of perfection. So there's some little pictures there to help you. What were the seven signs in the book of John? Water into wine. Funny how everyone remembers that one, isn't it? Healing. He healed the official son. He made the lame man walk. Feeding the multitudes, yeah? Walking on the water. Yep, giving sight to the blind. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Well done. Would you have done it without the little pictures to help you? I wouldn't. (laughs) You see, these are through John's gospel, before the bit that we come to, to help us to understand who Jesus is, that he is the one who can turn water into wine, who can heal the sick, who can make the lame walk, who can walk on water, who can multiply food, who can give sight to the blind, who can even raise from the dead. There's seven signs, but there are also seven sayings, the I am sayings, that through the book of John that help us to understand who Jesus really is. Shall we see if we can do it without the pictures, since you're doing so well this morning? 
So I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. Good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Light of the world. The gate. That's everything. Bread of life, light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, the vine, the resurrection and the life, the way and the truth and the life. And these are the seven sayings that we're going to be looking at in the context over these next seven weeks to help us to understand more about who Jesus is. Now, when I say to you, I am a flute player, I am a minister, I am a mum, it doesn't quite carry the same earth-shattering reality of what happened when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, or I am all of the other things. You do not bow down on the ground and get all kind of... You just go, oh, oh, that's nice. Something happened when Jesus said, I am any of the things that he said. And in order to understand that, we need to have the backdrop of the passage in Exodus chapter 3 that would have been in the minds of every single Jewish person who ever heard Jesus speak. So if we turn to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 11. This is the story where Moses, who was in the desert looking after sheep, noticed that there was a bush that looked like it was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And so he, turned, he went over to have a closer look at it, and uh, it felt like the bush spoke to him. In fact, it wasn't the bush, it was God. And God said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let all his slave force free from Egypt. Moses didn't think that was quite the best idea that God had ever had. And so he has a bit of a conversation with God. And in verse 11, it says this, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. I do love that, that the sign is after it's all happened. Personally, I quite like signs beforehand rather than, yeah. (laughs) Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Hmm. Does that sound kind of familiar of what Jesus said? So in the background for every Jewish person was this sense that the name of God was I am. So when they heard those words, which became the word Yahweh, They knew exactly who they were talking about. The words that God used to Moses could have been spoken like this, Aye, Asher, Aye. But the Hebrew, the one that's the same, as opposed to the spot the difference one in the middle, when you put the vowels in it, it can turn into Yahweh. And they never really said the name of God anyway, because it was too precious, too holy, But Hebrew is an interesting kind of a language. 
because its tenses are a little bit mm, random. As someone who studied Hebrew for three years and had to learn all of the verbs and how they declined and all of the tenses and learn them to such an extent out loud that my roommate could actually say them all even though she didn't do Hebrew by the end of it, I learned that it didn't really much matter which tense you used because Hebrews have a kind of a whole view on history. So the past and the present and the future, well, you know kind of emerge together. So when God says, I am who I am, he could equally say, I will be who I will be. He's the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is ever present. When God says, I am, he doesn't just mean I am in this moment. He means I always am. His name is to be honored. The name of the Lord. I am who I am has sent you. And Jesus appropriates the name of God. He takes it for himself. Now you can only do that if it's true. If we turn back to John chapter 8, Jesus is having one of his conversations with the Jewish people. And uh, he says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced, verse 56, sorry, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And the people say, You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. It's a joke, you are allowed to laugh. It's like ridiculous. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. This wasn't the grammar police saying, you can't say that, doesn't make sense. Grammatically, before Abraham was, I am, is just a ridiculous sentence. Sort yourself out. They knew. They knew what he was implying. They knew that what he was implying gave them reason to kill him. They knew that what he was saying was blasphemous. In fact, in their eyes, not so very long later, Jesus was crucified for blasphemy. He was crucified for claiming to be God. When Jesus says, I am, he is doing a whole lot more than just choosing a nice metaphor or defining something about his character, or something he does. He is in that moment claiming equality with God. And that is why these phrases are so important to our understanding, and to John's argument that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, equal with God. So, John chapter 14, the verses that Kirsty read to us. We need to understand something about the context of these verses. They come right at the front end of a very, very key part of John's gospel and Jesus' life. They are often referred to, these chapters from chapter 14 to chapter 16, as the farewell discourse, the conversation that Jesus had with his friends when he knew that he was about to leave the earth. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, doesn't he? 
It says he showed them the full extent of his love. He shares with them the Passover meal. And in that meal, there's those difficult conversations where Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all go, well, it's not me, not, not me. And Jesus says, the one who dips his bread with me. And Judas takes the bread and dips it and leaves the room. And then they have another conversation where Jesus says, one of you will deny me. Not me, not me. I'll never do that. And Jesus says, yes, one of you will. And so you sense this buildup of tension amongst them. They're in Jerusalem. The authorities are out to get Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to be hiding himself away. In fact, he seems to be putting himself out there even more in the public arena. There's a tension, a growing aggression, an uncertainty, a anxiety for Jesus' friends in that room. And Jesus speaks to them. And John records for us these very intimate conversations that Jesus has with his disciples in that moment. And he brings comfort and hope to them. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus has said, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times to Peter. Then he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He can sense what they're feeling there. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now this isn't the kind of thing where you say, trust me, I'm a doctor. Jesus isn't saying, trust in God, oh yeah, and, and trust in me, because I'm kind of reliable kind of character. He puts those two things right in juxtaposition together. Trust in God, trust in me. He's saying the same thing. We are trustworthy. I am trustworthy. Equality with God that is running through John's gospel. And then he goes on to say this. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, he says a room. We don't know what kind of a room. If you have dreams of a mansion, I'm sorry, it says a room. I know the old version has mansions, and we could go back to that. In my father's you know, place, there's many mansions. Have you decided what kind of a mansion you would like? Have you thought about the decorations that you would like, the size of your garden, whether you have a water feature? Some of you haven't thought about this enough, clearly. You know, this is where you're going to spend eternity, folks, so it's really worth thinking about what kind of a mansion you would like. See, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Big rooms? Rooms with an ensuite? Box rooms? What kind of rooms are we talking about? Do you not ask these questions? <laughs> What's Jesus talking about? What's he talking about? Is there some kind of metaphor for heaven that is like this huge mansion with lots of rooms and Jesus is going to get your bed ready for you, for your time? What are we talking about here? I didn't understand this for so long. It sounded nice, but I didn't understand it. You see, I started to understand this by watching the BBC version of the Nativity story and by some of the reading that I'd done. Because after the betrothal of a bridegroom to his bride, 
the bridegroom would go back to his home, to his father's house, and he would build another section of the house. It might be a room, it might be a part, like a, you know, a whole house, because most people's homes were just built with mud and straw and, and bits of wood, and just a huge area. So, so you'd build another bit, and you'd spend all your time as the bridegroom preparing that part of the house. And when it was ready, then you would go to fetch your bride. And you would go out into the streets with all your friends, and the trumpets would be playing, and you read 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, um, and it talks about the coming back of Jesus. The bridegroom would go into the streets and everyone would join him in the streets and they'd dance through the streets to the bride's house and then the marriage would take place and then the bridegroom would take the bride back to the room that he had prepared for her. Do you get it? No. Do you get it? Do I need to explain it again? Jesus is saying he is the bridegroom He is preparing that place in his father's house for the time when it's ready and then he will come back to get his bride and take his bride to be with him forever in his home. It's good. You can smile. (laughs) He then says, you know the place, sorry, you know the way to the place where I'm going. He speaks confidently to them. He speaks confidently because he spent the last three years telling them. He says, you know the way to the place that I'm going. Well, you've got to love Thomas, haven't you? Thomas is the one that goes, I'm sure no one actually knows what he's talking about. Anyone else going to ask the question? Excuse me, Jesus. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? See, this is like me in next week's church weekend. I've no idea where I'm going, and consequently, I don't know how to get there either. Hopefully, by next Friday, I will know. Thomas says, we haven't got it. We don't know. We haven't understood. Even though you've been talking to us, we haven't understood. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus has spent three years talking about the fact that he would lay down his life. Talking about the fact that he would need to go to the cross. Talking about the fact that after that, after three days, he would be raised from the dead. But I haven't heard him. Because the way to the Father's house is the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross for Jesus. That there's no way that we can go to be with him in the Father's house apart from the way of the cross. That he will lay down his life that he will carry our sinfulness and guilt and shame, that he will bear it all, be separated from his Father in heaven. 
will spend three days in a tomb. And then we'll conquer sin and death and hell and be raised to life and create that opportunity for every one of us to take our place in the Father's house. The way is the way of the cross. The way is Jesus himself. Not I'll show you the way or I'll point you in the right direction or I'll plug it into your sat-nav, but I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's 100% about him, Jesus. And I'll trust in him as the way and the truth and the life. And there's a bit of a paradox here, isn't there, that the way is through the shame of a Roman cross, through the death for despised criminals, through the thing that seems like the dead end is actually the way. That the truth is the one who was condemned by lying witnesses, who wasn't believed by people, even his friends. But he is the truth. That the life was spoken and given to us by one whose battered corpse would soon lie in a dark tomb. He is the fulfillment of everything. The Torah was called the way. Everything that the Jewish people followed and believed in, the way, Jesus said, I am the way. He is the truth, not he speaks of it. But John says in chapter 1, verse 14, he came to us full of grace and truth. Truth is not a proposition or a concept, it's a person, it's Jesus. He is the life, the one who promises us abundant life, the one who in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead said, I am the resurrection and the life, death-defying, sin-conquering life. I am the resurrection, sorry, I am the way, the truth and the life. So what do we do with the the? What do we do with the the? I am the way, the truth, the life. What do we do with the the? Not I am a way. Not I am a comparable alternative with someone or something else. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying is utterly consistent with everything that has been taught in the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before me. God spent all his time mopping up the mess that the people created because they would not just choose Yahweh, the Lord God. <coughs> So what Jesus is saying when he says, I am, is not just about his equality with God, but utterly consistent with the way of God, that there is only one way, one God. That exclusivity is not particularly popular, is it? In fact, it's often considered just simply to be arrogant or a bit ill-advised. But it is entirely consistent with the whole New Testament. 
where Peter, not so very long later, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, would say these words, salvation is found in no one else. No other name has been given by which men can be saved. Only the name of Jesus. Now, I've been reflecting on this quite a bit over the last 24 hours. (laughs) And I think that part of our issue with this verse is that we don't understand it within its context, but... Part of our issue is it's one of the verses that is slammed on sandwich boards and, uh, and people parade around with I am the way, the truth and the life or something equivalent on a sandwich board in a marketplace or in a city and, and somehow the mixture of the person with the sandwich boards and the verse smacks entirely of arrogance and irrelevance and makes us feel uncomfortable with the things that Jesus said. And so we feel more comfortable taking our scissors and saying, oh, we um, probably didn't actually mean that. I think he actually did. And as I've been thinking about it, and thinking more and more about the context, I've remembered who Jesus was speaking to. Jesus was in a room having shared Passover with his friends, with those that he'd walked and talked with and lived with for three years. And in the midst of that conversation about their space in the Father's house, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's not shouting it out from a street corner to an unknowing mass of people, he's telling his friends, listen, all the things that you're trying to put together, all your uncertainties, all your unknowns, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You're not. No amount of self-reliance and independence will ever make it there. Trust me, trust in me, Rely on me, because through my death and resurrection, I will open up the way to the Father forever. You see, Peter grasps that. And through that sense of his denial, of his disappointing of Jesus, of Jesus meeting him again, risen from the tomb, of the encounter with the Holy Spirit, Only then does he stand up in the marketplace and say, you know what, I know this. There is no other name but the name of Jesus through which you can be saved. This is what I know and I'm sharing it with you. There's no other name but the name of Jesus. I never used to have an issue with this verse because I grew up in the kind of church that didn't have issues with this verse. And then for a while, I had issues with it. I mean, I didn't tell you that, but it used to just keep me awake sometimes thinking, this is really harsh, this, isn't it? Isn't this a tough thing to believe? But you know what? Over these last few years, more and more have I gained in confidence that what Jesus says is true. I never really thought it wasn't, you understand what I'm saying part of the reason for that 
is the amount of people that are now in our church who have encountered Jesus from all manner of different backgrounds and have found that Jesus is hope. Jesus is life. Jesus is truth. He is the way. The other thing is that across the globe right now, Across the Muslim world particularly, more people have encountered Jesus Christ than at any other point in history. And those people who have Jesus revealed to them in dreams and visions, through reading scripture, through encounter with other believers who are prepared to put their life on the line, are saying, Jesus, he's the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Meet him. There is an explosion of faith in Jesus across the Muslim world. There is revival in the name of Jesus across our globe. We just need to see a bit more of it in Europe. We are not called to be arrogant or rude. We can be confident in our experience of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, who's written lots of stuff and uh, who leads a church in the, in the United States, tweeted this in the week, and I was like, excellent, I need that for my sermon. And he said this, the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world Brilliant. Let me read it to you again. The gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's invited. Jesus' arms are outstretched in love to every single person. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter anything about you. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, anything about your background or your culture doesn't matter about your age, nothing matters. Everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. Everyone is equal before Jesus. We all come on the same terms. It is utterly inclusive through Jesus. I think that's brilliant. Jesus says, that we can go home with him to the Father's house, that he is the way. Jesus invites us to come to his house. You know, it's a little bit awkward inviting people to someone else's house. I was in Kent most of the week, and... um, in the middle of nowhere. I, I have nowhere, no idea where I was. And um, as we drove to the place in the middle of nowhere, we passed a lot of really nice houses. <laughs> and the one just immediately before where we were staying was this like huge red brick house, this huge drive, about four really posh cars in the drive, massive hedges, lovely gardens. And it would have been really nice to say, Dave, why don't you bring your family and come and have a meal with us there? But apparently you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to invite people to somebody else's house if they haven't given you permission. See, Jesus 
can invite us to come to the Father's house because it's his Father's house. And he says, I can open the door. I can welcome you in. When you know me, you can know the Father. And you can be in his house forever. And that seems to be a lot less difficult when we're just saying to people, I'd really like to invite you to the Father's house. And by the way, I'm really good friends with his son, so it's okay for you to come. Because he'd like to know you too. Because he's the way and the truth and the life. And you might get to understand what that means, but the best thing is you get to be in the Father's house forever.